Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Our guest on the pod this week is Lee Beck from the Clean Air Task Force. We recorded this episode in July before the summer break, so the views held in this episode reflect the situation as it was at the time of recording. Since then, of course, a lot has happened, notably the IRA legislation in the US, but it's still a fascinating conversation with Lee, which we hope you'll enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and today I am joined by Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hole from Agori Energy Vendor. Hi team, are you both well? Cooled down quite a bit. It was, uh, I think, almost 40 degrees in Oxford um, and uh, unbearably hot during the night, but it's now nice and cool, so a lot better. Um, yesterday I went to the supermarket to buy some cheese and all the fridges were shut down you couldn't buy anything that was refrigerated the entire supermarket was basically uh, cordoned off and uh, signs were put up saying because of extreme heat we sorry we can't actually refrigerate the food anymore so it's strange times we're living in wow how bizarre yeah absolutely yeah very warm at the moment uh michaela how are you dealing with the heat well also brussels was warm and uh, unfortunately, it's not yet cu- cucumber season, so there's still work to be done. We are expecting uh, the communication on the gas savings today. So, you know, it's not like at school you can take time off when it's too hot, but soon, but soon. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of the gas package, uh, perhaps one of the more controversial topics in the energy transition is the role of carbon capture and storage, or CCS, and what its role can be in a decarbonized future. There are some industrial processes in particular that will rely on carbon capture, but can it also be used elsewhere in our energy landscape as a tool in our quest to net zero? Our guest this week is Lee Beck, Senior Director for Europe at the Clean Air Task Force, a US-based non-profit organization. Lee leads the task force's cross-functional, cross-regional and cross-programmatic growth and climate policy impact in Europe. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today on What Matters. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. It's an honor to be here together and um, excited that some of you are also in Brussels with me today. Uh, Lee, maybe we could just quickly start um, clarifying a couple of the concepts around that we're going to be throwing around lots of letters, I think, today. CCS, CCUS, CCU. What are the different technologies um, and when can CCS technologies be considered emissions reductions or removal technologies? And which of these technologies are good? quotes, uh, and which are necessary aren't, and which industrial sectors will benefit from these technologies the most? Yeah, well, that's already a huge question, um, if I will say. Um, obviously, everyone knows there's CCS, there's CCUS, there's carbon management. And I think the biggest question that I always get asked is, so which one does which, where is it applicable? And um, I think what we like to say um, at Cleaner Task Force is that carbon capture and storage technologies are a range of technologies that can help us um, reduce um, the stock of CO2 already in the air, for example, through carbon removal technologies such as um, direct air capture technologies, but also um, choke the flow of emissions from energy intensive industrial facilities Um, by capturing the CO2 and storing it underground, for example, from cement and steel facilities. It's um, the only option to fully decarbonize cement with kind of a portfolio of other um, emissions-reducing strategies, such as, say, energy efficiency and fuel switching. It's one of two main pathways to decarbonize steel. Um, It can also help us produce hydrogen if we're pairing it with high capture rates, of course, always, and upstream methane. But it's in general, the value stream has multiple technologies. And we always like to talk at Cleaner Task Force, like to talk about a carbon management vision where we're having industrial facilities um, capture their CO2 um, and 
store it via shared and efficiently cited CO2 transport and storage infrastructure, and are also paired with carbon removal or director capture facilities that feed into this infrastructure and really having this future where we're managing the carbon both in industry, but also um, the carbon that's already in the air. So um, a lot of the questions surrounding CCS and all of its relevant offshoots um, are that it's perhaps not a, a well pro- uh, not proven technology or very well established. There are maybe only 50 CCS projects uh, in Europe at the moment. What do you make of the criticism from society organizations arguing that they aren't proven? Um, and why has it not made more of an impact in the European um, energy space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to hear from all of you, right? Why are we always saying it's controversial? It's not proven. Um, when we're really, the answer is um, that we really haven't made a comprehensive attempt to commercialize these technologies due to policy flip-flopping, and I'm happy to go into this more throughout this discussion. But in general, I think it's the the technology has been around for more than 50 years. Um, there's more than 25 facilities that are operating today. But as I said, because of this policy flip-flopping and, and a business model that's not fully established, and also with the industrial sector having been a climate blind spot for so long, um, we just have we've never made this this real effort to commercialize these technologies, and I think from that stems this misconception: it's not working, it's 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 controversial. But what we're really seeing is that the technology is working, but we haven't we're, we're seeing it, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem or a game of chicken between governments and industry. Can I come in and challenge you a little bit? I have to admit. Um, you know, when I still was working in the European Commission, our unit was called Policies for Renewables and CCS. And somehow, uh, you know, a bit childish, somehow I didn't mention that it was also CCS. I didn't work on it. You see what I mean? So I used to be a little bit critical. But since I left, I have indeed uh, the IPCC, our own Agora Energy, when the studies say um, you cannot do without there's some industries we need to compensate for agriculture. And I totally understand it. But I wouldn't because but I wouldn't say it's a proven technology like what you what I found on your website. I, I mean, for me, offshore wind is by now a proven technology, but carbon capture and storage is not. I mean, it's not it's not scalable. And um, I'm like out of curiosity, how much CO2 is currently captured in Europe? At this day? Well, that's actually a great question. So I would say, I would challenge it's not scalable. We never attempted to scale it. But I think if we're looking at analyses, we can see that there are pathways for the inter- infrastructure to be scaled and the technology to be scaled. But what I really want to point is this is industrial decarbonization is incredibly complex. There's not a silver bullet, right? We need to have efficiency measures yeah. in place, fuel switching, we need the right incentives. Um, to make sure that these businesses stay afloat while they're decarbonizing. And carbon capture and storage is involves multiple technologies capturing the CO2 of the smoke tech, transporting it, storing it, different technologies for different applications, cement, steel, gas processing, hydrogen, all of these are different, director capture, different technologies with different technology readiness levels, right? And so what what I'm seeing is, or what we're seeing is that we haven't, you know, you're mentioning offshore wind, so at solar is a great example. We've had very technology-specific innovation policy to deploy these technologies and to bridge the extra cost. But when we're looking at carbon capture and storage, as I said, when we're looking at the ETS, industry is let off the hook, power right. sector is let off the hook. So there's not stringent enough climate policy to really make the case, but there was also never a targeted innovation policy until today where we're really investing in these technologies. So I think it's a little bit unfair to say, well, it's not working if we've never made a committed attempt and basically governments have let industry off the hook. No, no, I totally agree. But I still would, it's not proven, but it doesn't mean it cannot work ever. That I totally agree. And I'm fully with you when you say, basically, we haven't done anything to decarbonize industry. Uh, well, it's, it's, let me turn the table to you. Why do you think it's not proven? What if the value chain isn't proven 
if we're storing about 40 million tons from 25 facilities globally, there's two in the in Norway, one that has been storing CO2 reliably, and the data is actually um, publicly available since the 1990s. But it's one site in Europe that is storing. And uh, the magnitudes of what we see so far, say, um, this Iceland project, the direct air capture project, how much it takes out of the air is... It's very little compared to what we need. Huh? I mean, uh, captures 4,000 tons. And in our Agora study, we would need negative emissions. Uh, Agora study that was to make Germany climate neutral, I should add. Otherwise, it's a bit non, not understandable. We need 31 million tons. So, you know, this is like a huge... Uh, and, and, and basically, uh, we don't have the storage yet in place. We don't have the transport capacity in place. So for me, proven means, you know, this has worked in several places and it hasn't. So I don't know, I don't want to talk about semantics, but it's not proven. You cannot say that it hasn't been supported. Yes, I agree. We haven't done anything on industry. Yes, I agree. So let me push back on that one more time. So I think we need to um, be add a little bit more nuance to this conversation. I agree direct air capture technologies, as you were um, referring to, have not been demonstrated at megaton scale. The Iceland facility, the Orca facility, is a pilot scale um, that is relatively new, went into operation last week. But when we're looking at carbon management technologies, we're also looking at point source capture, which has been demonstrated at megaton scale in the United States. As I said, in Norway, it's the Sleipner and Snowbit facilities. We're building an additional facility in Northern Lights, CO2 storage. We've been storing CO2 for um, industrial purposes for over half a decade. So the ind- we, we have in the U.S. 5,000 miles of pipelines. So the individual value chain pieces definitely have been proven to work. We have not built it, but I think you're you're making a very, very important point. Well, why do we not have the storage? Why do we not have the transport in Europe? And the reason is because these are complex pieces, right? Say you're a cement facility and you have to decarbonize your, but you've, your entire, you know, the entire history of your business is on producing cement. You're not an expert in subsurface geology. You're not an expert mm-hmm. in CO2, in pipelines and transporting stuff via pipelines, you're not an expert in CO2 capture technology. So you have all of these pieces have to fall into place at the same time. And this is why I think industry, um, and this is not specific to any industry in general, those industries that should be deploying carbon capture and storage have already always said, well, it's really, really hard for us to make this work if the government isn't helping us to individually piece together and get policy in place so we can have different um, people, different entities focusing on these different pieces of the puzzle, capture, CO2 transport, CO2 storage, and make them work all at the same time and fall into place. These are complex, industri- multi-billion dollar industrial um, yeah. industrial projects. And so, you know, I just want to point to the complexity of yeah. industrial decarbonization here. And I think uh, there's often this kind of notion, well, if we just, you know, carbon capture and storage has been kind of, you know, the slowest to develop for vis-a-vis, say, efficiency. So it's not working, but I think that's wrong and unjust to the technology. Could I come in here? I have a a follow-up question. Um, Just looking at the point that you made, Lee, that there hasn't been enough policy support for CCS. Um, I mean, critics might point to the early efforts sort of about about a decade ago when Europe... um, uh, put a lot of money aside um, to, uh, I think, uh, fund innovation projects um, on CCS. I think 12 projects were supposed to get funding. And um, you know, when you look at the, the literature that kind of looks back at how successful those programs have been, it's pretty disappointing. Um, uh, most of the funding, I think, hasn't actually been used, as far as I understand. And out of the 12 projects, I'm not sure whether there's a single operating project today that comes out of, of that program. So I, I wonder when you say we need better policy, is it is it that we've just used the wrong kind of policies? Is 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 the innovation funding approach the wrong approach? Is there something else that's that that's missing? Um, so yeah, why why has policy failed in the past to deliver um, uh, more projects in, in in the way that you describe we need to see? Yeah, absolutely. And actually let me take a step back here. I think 
you know, um, from cleaner task forces perspective, we're a climate NGO. We're not um, working on these technologies because, you know, we want to push these particular technologies. Our work's really driven by optionality. We um, recognize that the technology portfolio for decarbonization in the against the backdrop of social resource, ec- political economic circumstances will be different for each country, say, I think we can all agree that energy transition will be different in Poland than in Portugal. And so from our perspective, we just want to make sure we are investing these technologies. We're bringing them to scale. And with scale, I mean, really mean we have proven business models, reduced cost, enabled learning by doing and um, built enough facilities to really have an at scale product um, that is standardized and uh, can be deployed globally. And, Um, So from our perspective, it's really important to highlight this piece, that this is really about the innovation and the availability of technology rather than the deployment everywhere at every single facility that might be eligible or available to deploy this technology. But it's really a place-based. The place-based outcomes are down to the individual local circumstances and decisions. And so going back to your question, which I very much appreciate, um, I think there were certain missteps in the policy formulation with regards to carbon capture and storage. So yes, there was the NER 300, which really focused on these big one-off projects. And especially in the early attempts of commercializing CCS, it was focused on coal, the hardest to decarbonize, the biggest megaton Mm -hmm. scale carbon capture and storage facilities. And then, of course, we had Mm -hmm. multiple... Um, the the fund there was no f- uh, feasibility front end engineering studies done to really understand what's the pathway is this really viable right um, and then of course we had um, the natural gas uh, natural cheap natural gas availability that changed the need to decarbonize some of these facilities and so there are multiple different I think uh, also uh, you know ETS price in free fall at certain point in time so there's multiple reasons why these policies failed. But I think Mm. what's way more important than, you know, debating whether these were the wrong or right policies is really what can we learn from this? And what I think we can learn is that um, climate policy is an innovation policy. So climate policies can help us understand that there's a long-term urge to decarbonize, but unless they're really, really targeted and or really, really high price, the ETS of say, you know, so far hasn't on its own delivered commercialization of carbon capture and storage, then we need more technology-specific innovation policies. I think, you know, I'm from Germany. I think um, the EEG was uh, amazing, has commercialized solar, made it globally available. And so we want to replicate this. Essentially, we want policies that help us bridge the cost gap, um, incentivize first movers, and help us deploy and enable learning by doing. Most of the cost reductions in solar were not from R&D, early stage R&D, but from learning by doing. And so I think this is what we're looking at. If we're really looking for an industrial policy framework in in Europe um, or a carbon capture and storage strategy, which I think we should definitely be talking about, then this is really this making sure we're planning the projects while we're citing the infrastructure well. We're understanding what kind of infrastructure do we need to decarbonize strategically important industries and then how can we target, tailor it to really make sure we're deploying this technology responsibly um, and enabling these, you know, cost reductions, learning by doing um, and innovation gains for climate. And to follow up on um, on Jan's question, there was just the, the second call under the innovation fund no? and projects were mm-hmm. identified. I think there were four projects in there for CCS, mainly in cement, which struck me as quite a good choice of priority. So um, will things get better now with this? Do you see an improvement in the, in, in the way we're approaching it then? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're really excited about this is already the second innovation fund announcement. And we're, of course, also um, seeing positive um, movements towards the carbon capture and storage vision and strategy, because I think what what needs to be done now, it's been an afterthought in European policymaking is, and the Innovation Fund is kind of the first wave to do demonstration projects. And of course, we're really excited for cement, as I said, 8% of global emissions, but this is really the the technology to get us to the 
um, de- fully decarbonizing these um, facilities. But also now I think we need to be looking at exactly what you were saying earlier, Michaela, is we need to make sure we have different policies in place to enable CO2 storage availability, CO2 transport availability, and CO2 capture availability. And so there's some more policy evolution that we are expecting from ETS reform and kind of the next generation of innovation funding in in European Union. But um, in general, we're, we're... we're really happy to see that Europe is embracing industrial decarbonization. And of course, with this specific announcement, um, a proliferation of the technology also to other areas, uh, Bulgaria, Poland, France, as an example, rather than being kind of clustered around the North Sea. I, I would like to um, actually come back to uh, coal. You mentioned coal before, and these these projects were focused heavily on coal. You know, as as someone who's not a CCS expert, you know, when I look at the kind of clean coal story, um, I, I I'm I'm really puzzled by you know the amount of effort that went into clean coal um, over many many years. Um, yeah, driven mainly by the coal industry itself because they had an interest to demonstrate that clean coal was possible and that coal could still play a role even under uh, yeah, an eighty percent reduction pathway at the time. Um, but there's, as far as I know, there's only one single commercially operating coal power plant in the world with CCS uh, in Canada, the Boundary Dam project in Canada. Um, and in that case, it's actually used uh, to extract more oil out of an, a mature oil field. Uh, and that's it. There's only one single project. All the other projects, there was one actually in Germany where uh, CCS uh, was used, um, Schwarze Pumpe, I think, is the was the power plant, Lickmat power plant. Uh, I believe, and and uh, also, um, you know, there were several other projects in the U.S. Um, and and they no longer use CCS. So I, um, I guess as as someone who who looks at this uh, not as an expert but as an observer, um, I just get the feeling a lot of talk, yeah, and a lot of campaigning around clean coal, but we end up with one single project after all those years. Uh, and you know, potentially a delay in the phase out of coal um, as a result, because policymakers will have thought, oh, maybe there is a role for coal. Maybe there is a role for clean coal here, but it didn't work. And I think you, know, you asked earlier, well, why is there maybe um, controversy or skepticism? Um, I think it's partly because of that, because people will remember that story around clean coal and think, well, you know, we were told this would work and there's not much to show for. And now we're getting the same story, but for different sectors, how can we believe um, that this is going to happen this time around? So I'm just going to sort of put it to you as what, what's different to the clean coal story now. Um, and do what you agree um, you know, with, with kind of what I described or are there more nuances uh, to, to my summary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there is nuance here again, from a technology optionality perspective, Right. We might be phasing out coal in advanced economies, but the average age of a coal plant in Southeast Asia is about 11 to 13 years. And while there are pledges, we aren't making fast enough progress. So having the technology available to potentially abate some of these plants um, is certainly important from our perspective. And I think there were also learning from learnings from these facilities. But of course, moving forward, you know, I think um, cement and steel um, are different questions. They're strategic industries. They employ hundreds of thousands of people in advanced economies. And um, right, they're the building blocks of the modern world, right? And so these are, um, and I think one important piece that is always overlooked from the IPCC reports is that it actually says the sooner we can reduce emissions, the better our chance at fending off the worst effects of climate change. So we need to ensure that we're transforming, future-proofing these assets in the near term, particularly industrial assets. And for for some of those, carbon capture and storage will be needed. Um, and so I think this is, is, is a complex political economic question. And again, it's down to um, the individual community, if they, if they have a plant, say a cement plant, and they want it to continue operating, they make this decision to deploy carbon capture and storage, then the technology should be available to them. Mm, would you agree? I don't know how in your communication, would you agree that it, it's important with CCS to really highlight uh, that it will be used in certain locations and certain 
applications mostly. And in order to avoid this disappointment, again, that we've seen with clean coal, it will not be a generalized solution to get fossil molecules that currently travel the grid and also blue hydrogen clean everywhere. But it will it will be essential to have it for certain industries. It will be essential uh, to, to compensate whatever we have left and cannot abate. But it, you know, to... To counter this story that that some people feel will just be a delay tactic. Well, I think the delay. I mean, the delay tactic comes from this. You know what I alluded to earlier. This kind of game of chicken, right? Industry says we need policies, and government says, well, industry isn't doing anything. And really, you know, industry needs to show that they can transform their business models, that they can decarbonize by using these innovative technologies to build trust in these technologies with the incentives that governments provide, right? And then governments need to build on that and deliver political recognition for these technologies. Again, I think um, this, this question, you know, for example, hydrogen, I think if we really, Europe is a climate superpower, we are um, focused on uh, commercializing the hydrogen economy and we need to be laser focused on delivering that hydrogen economy. And we need to honestly reframe away from um, colors to volumes. And so blue hydrogen can be an option to scale up the hydrogen economy in Europe, but it has to come with 99% plus capture and stringent upstream methane regulation. Could you elaborate a bit more on the capture rates? Because that's actually at the moment being discussed here in Brussels. I don't know to what extent you were following it. Uh, you will for sure follow it as of now, I guess. Um, yeah, so basically we still don't have a definition for low carbon, which I guess is also one of the things you would like to have to see, right? Because we're spending money based on this non-definition. We're giving state aid based on this non-definition. So um, there are discussions to include uh, criteria for what it means, low carbon. And in, indeed, what is being discussed is minimum capture rates, maximum leakage rates. You, you just put a very high number out. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, uh, you know, what's feasible, like what do they capture today and what would be needed for existing and new? What would you recommend to policymakers? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And actually, we're currently in the context of hydrogen. I think we have a forthcoming blog this week on um, hydrogen certification and really, you know, this opportunity that presents itself for Europe to define what a global low carbon hydrogen market could look like based on setting a standard. So please look out for um, this blog. I think from... Um, I will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I appreciate this question because, again, this is something that is often, you know, kind of discussed in the media. And um, the question here is, you know, how are these facilities designed from the get-go? And when we first designed some of these facilities, right, um, it they weren't designed for maximum capture, but there's no technical barrier to say capture 98% of the flue gas. And there are some facilities in the U.S. that have the design specs, Um to be capturing that high of, of CO2. So, and that's what we should be aiming for in the future. But again, it depends. There's This is a really complex technology. So it depends really on the application. It depends on the facility. It depends on whether you're building something from building a facility that already has carbon capture included from the beginning, or if you're retrofitting a facility, it depends on the application. So, you know, um, natural gas processing might have might have a high concentration of CO two in you know very limited flue gas streams. Refineries have hundreds of source points sources of emissions, some of which can be decarbonized with carbon captures. Other you will need fuel switching, right? So that's why I'm saying. And so when policymakers are um, legislate trying to legislate these high capture rates, there's often the these questions and we've had some of these conversations in the US context in 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 the in the European context is how can we design legislation where we can build these facilities to the right maximum climate impact but without choking the technology off 
um, in the beginning. And so because this is so technically complex, it's it's really important for policymakers to p- pay close attention and to get multiple experts insights on what's pol- possible based on the current technology state. Right. And this is where I think it's really, really important for us to um, reflect kind of engineering realities in 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 climate legislation. Does that does that answer your question? Does that make sense? Yeah. So you say we would need minimum standards, but they should be uh, they sh- they should be not a, un- a uniform, but they should take account of where the technology is used, whether it's an existing or a new. But you would agree we would need some minimum requirements, and they are in the area of ninety plus, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think again, as I I think you're hitting um, the nail on the head here. It depends on the technology. It depends on um, the application. Uh, it depends on what kind of facility. Um, I would have to confer with our technical experts to really, you know, give you an exact answer on how we could write this into legislation. Um, but I think the general notion that we, of course, want to encourage as much capture as possible and as much. And again, also, this is really important, you know. It's not a silver bullet, so it's not enough to slap carbon capture on a cement facility. Then we still need additional strategies, fuel switching, um, efficiency, clinker substitution, right? All of these fold mm-hmm. together. So I I just want to really warn to any you know policymakers who are listening right now, this is really, really complex down to the facility level, and we really need to make sure that we are encouraging best performance technology application for climate, but also making it realistic to actually build a facility. Hi, everyone. David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, where you can access our website and audio app go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. What what role do you see for <clears throat> new gas plants uh, fitted with CCS uh, you know, in, the, in the kind of wider uh, energy transition discussion? It, do you think there, there there is a role uh, for those kinds of technologies, or do you think it's more about um, you know, focusing on on you mentioned the cement sector many many times already um, on those sectors that are uh, really difficult to abate where there's fewer alternatives, or should we, in your view, um, also encourage uh, new gas plants with 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 CCS? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, different, several different nuances here again. Um, so I definitely think we need to commercialize the technologies to decarbonize gas plants, and we need stringent eumethane regulation um, in, in, on top of, of course, global, stringent global methane regulation. Um, I think we, again, in the United States, for example, um, we are certainly expecting natural gas um, with carbon capture and storage. And in some European countries, this is also under discussion. But it's, again, if there's alternative pathways, we need to build as many renewables as possible, obviously. And that should always be our top strategy. But I wouldn't, like, I can't tell you, and later when we're talking about the crystal ball, I think this is really important. Like, we shouldn't... um, create path dependency by cutting off technology innovation and technology commercialization today, right? And so there's promising new technologies also for um, natural gas power. Um, It's called net power technology. It's been um, demonstrated at pilot scale, and it basically uses the CO2 um, to uh, power the turbine, uh, for power generation. So it's called the alum cycle. It um, has really high capture rates. But again, these are technology options, and that's what we need to be focusing on. And um, in the spirit of, uh, you know, that we need to decarbonize as soon as possible, the sooner the better, the sooner we can, the better our chances at fending off the worst effects of climate change. If there's young gas plants that are energy security relevant, we should certainly take a good look 
at them how fast we can decarbonize. But again, this is also dependent in on the, the geopolitical circumstances around natural gas, right? And I would love to hear your assessments for those. Well, I mean, yeah, we had a, a, a several episodes, I think, on this podcast where we discussed the implications of the invasion of, of Ukraine uh, and what this means for rising energy prices, what this means for energy security. Um, and clearly, you know, the, the kind of story that um, we were told by the gas industry uh, two years ago that we can just have lots of uh, cheap gas where, you know, and use CCS and blue hydrogen. I think that story has changed quite a bit because gas prices are um, up about, depending on when you check, but I think it's about five times compared to the um, you know, previous price price levels. Uh, so the economics have, have changed so fundamentally. And I mean, that was partly why I asked you the question, Ali. Um, and yeah, I just saw the new work that Irina put out, I think, um, earlier yeah. this week on the falling costs of renewables. Um, of course, it's yeah, the LCOE metric, which a lot of people will say that's that's not a good metric to use, and I'm well aware of that. But just looking at you know at the point at which you invest in a new um, generation facility. Uh, now, you know, offshore wind, utility scale solar, onshore wind are all well below the cost of a new gas plant um, with or without uh, you know, carbon capture, with carbon cap- capture definitely below. So I, I guess just do the economics make it um, almost impossible? Uh, is, is there any business case for CCS gas plants these days? I think is, 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 is the answer is probably not right now because of, of the high gas prices. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, location-specific, um, from our perspective, we shouldn't, in an advanced economy, at least, be building any new gas facilities without um, stringent controls. And we should also be looking at the gas value chain if, if we're, you know, now, um, say, diversifying imports from the United States or the Middle East. We should be looking very closely at the gas value chains in terms of methane leakage and um, carbon capture and storage at, you know, LNG terminals, because you have to filter out this CO2 to compress it, actually kind of cost effective. And so we, we should be looking for the lowest mm-hmm. carbon gas, of course. But this, again, you know, every, in, in the energy transition, I would say we need to be much more cognizant of trade-offs and we need to be looking for energy security alternatives um, while not losing sight of, of climate. And I think this this is becoming very, very clear right now in Europe. You mentioned methane le- leaks. And I just wanted to, to ask you a quick follow-up question on that because um, I, you know, I, I'm sure you followed the debate between um, Mark Jacobson, um, Robert Howarth, and people like Mike Liebreich um, uh, yeah, about these these leakage rates. And um, you know, I know that in Norway, yeah, that's usually used as the example of very low leakage rates, um, you know, which which uh, even below one percent. Um, uh, but not everywhere is Norway. I mean, in the US, I think leakage rates on average. Um, are significantly higher. And um, we're now importing all this LNG, liquefied natural gas, um, from the US uh, to Europe. Um, So what scope is there actually for European Mm -hmm. uh, regulators to control leakage rates in the US, um, uh, you know, let alone in in, in places, uh, you know, even further afield uh, with, with looser regulatory uh, ties and, and and linkages to to European um, uh, policy. So I'm, I guess I'm 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 sort of just challenging a bit on on to what extent can we even control leakage rates when we import so much of our gas in Europe? Yeah, I think you know you mentioned you started this conversation in the context of blue hydrogen, and I think here right we need a definition. Uh, Europe needs to set the table in terms of what is the definition of low carbon hydrogen, and and that needs to take into account very stringent um, emissions uh, regulation, if that makes sense. Um, And I think uh, there's obviously multiple, um, there's methane regulation in Europe being discussed in the U.S. has been, I mean, uh, U.S. climate policy um, is currently uncertain, but of course we're, we're pressuring to, for the best possible outcome for climate. I was just going to bring in the U.S. policies there. How do U.S. How does U.S. history of CCS and U.S. policy surrounding CCS compare with Europe? Uh, and is there any, is there a, a chance for um, 
collaboration in that space? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. Um, so the U.S. government has probably done more than any other government in the world to commercialize these technologies. There are 13 operating facilities. Most of these facilities su- received support from um, the the U.S. government. And what we're looking at right now in um, the U.S. policy space is actually what I call a carbon man like a menu of carbon management policy options. So before we had kind of a tax credit, as you know, Americans need use tax credits to um, incentivize clean energy deployment and some funding for demonstrations. But with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, the U.S. government actually put on the table $12 billion for different policy options. So for multiple um, demonstration projects in cement and steel, as well as the power sector, cost share, 50-50 cost share, funding for feed studies to make sure we're increasing the likelihood of these projects uh, being successful. There's cost share grants and loans for supersized infrastructure that is strategic. There is cost share for um, commercializing CO2 storage, as well as um, cost share funding for uh, and pilot funding for direct air capture. So, and then of course there's the tax credit 45Q, which is basically an inverted price on carbon, but it's fifty dollars right now. And analyses has shown that you actually need more like eighty-five dollars um, to deliver cement and steel industrial transformation and $180 to incentivize direct air capture, which was on the table until recently. And uh, we think it's still possible in um, a different kind of, you know, through a different um, policy avenue in Congress. But so what we're really seeing is a really exciting um, policy framework. More projects have been announced. They're in CO2 storage. We're really seeing moving away from this single source, single sink to kind of this carbon management vision and hubs where emitters are sharing infrastructure and um, we're aiming to really um, have this state of art decarbonization hubs that also share multiple decarbonization technologies. I mean, Europe is, uh, I would say, a super fast follower that actually has a lot to offer in terms of industrial decarbonization. It's also pairing it with climate policy. So, of course, in the U.S., I think the biggest risk is that there's no long-term indicator of when we're actually going to be decarbonizing. Yes, there are goals. Yes, there's the NDC, but there's not no comprehensive climate policy. And um, in, in Europe, I think, right, industry understands we're going to be decarbonizing and you're going to lose your social license if you don't transform your business. And so I think there's a lot to learn. There's also a lot to learn from the cement um, cement projects that have been announced under the Innovation Fund, carbon contracts for difference, a different model. Um, so I think there's so actually we're looking to really help both sides of the trans, uh, trans uh, both sides of the Atlantic to collaborate. One, I think, important piece that is also uh, we're really excited about is, of course, European Union pioneering um, CDR carbon dioxide removal certification mechanism to really make sure we are um, having adequate regulation to reflect actual carbon dioxide removal. So we're hoping that this can be come a global standard. And um, yeah, we're very much looking forward to some of the international engagements, such as the Clean Energy Ministerial slash Mission Innovation in September um, and um, COP27 to further discuss some of these aspects. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just <laughs> can't, I'm just in the process of moving back from the United States to Europe. I spend a lot of time in Europe, but I'd love to see from your perspective, how does, uh, you know, the U.S. climate policy and innovation policy situation look to you um, from the other side of the Atlantic? Uh, that's a great question. I think maybe Jan might be best place to answer that, given uh, Rap's sort of uh, transatlantic uh, role <laughs> there. I, I pass on to Michaela. Well, how do I see? I think it's a little bit like you said, um, technology, but but first of all, there was all this big hiccup. There was supposed to be a lot of money and then it wasn't agreed. But like, I think you can see, for example, in in the area of offshore wind that they are cleverly catching up and, uh, and, and, 
setting the conditions in 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 in, in that field. Um, I have one question because you said you so first of all you moved back to Europe. Uh, but you said you were from Germany. There's one thing we didn't address, which seems to be maybe also a difference between the US and, well, say, for example, Germany is the public acceptance of CCS. That doesn't seem to be an issue in the US at all, or is it? Because you know from Germany, it's, it's, it's okay, there's nuclear and there's tempo limit and then there's CCS, which we don't want, yeah? <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so, I mean, it's not only technology, that's what I'm trying to say. And that seems to be, okay, we have a few places in Europe, we already said it's mostly Norway and and then there's many places where we don't want it. I think that's also a big challenge, right? Yeah, well, again, I you know would turn the table. I think um, to answer this question fairly, and not be speculating, I would need polling data from communities. How much do they actually know about these technologies? Do they actually want these technologies? What are the things they're believing in? And actually, that's what, what we're looking at in the United States is identifying you know, communities where this infrastructure, the CO2 storage availability, the infrastructure, the industrial nexus comes together and understand, well, what do we actually know about the energy transition in these technologies? And you know, where's their... Um, more engagement process needed. And I think we're, we're here all in agreement. We, you know, need to build these technologies together with community buy-in and ensure that everyone is on the same page. Um, so I think the best path forward is, of course, offshore CO2 storage right now in Europe and showing that the technology is working, that it's um, reliable, that is, it's safe. I mean, we know that it's safe. IPCC already in 2005 said that CO2 storage is safe. And, you know, you really have to do the upfront homework when you're selecting the site is the most important um, puzzle here because the, the highest risk of leakage, which is very, very low, is during injection, but not after site closure. And um, so, so I think there's general scientific consensus that it's safe, but of course we need the, the, the regulatory environment to ensure that site selection is up to standard, and uh, which we do. And um, then we, of course, want to make sure that we're building trust in these technologies. But I don't think that, you know, is a um, public acceptance on energy technologies isn't limited to CO2 storage, right? I mean, it's really hard for us to build uh, utility scale renewables, transmission. And I think we have to come to this realization as a collective that climate is an infrastructure problem. We will have to build infrastructure to be able to maintain our current standard of living and be able to have sufficient energy um, and industrial manufacturing to really continue. And so that will require us to build climate infrastructure. And I think the sooner governments can really get their ducks in a row and turn their ambition into clear infrastructure plans over the next, again, crystal ball question, over the next decade or two, and really... Um, She's totally waiting for the crystal ball question. <laughs> we understand how we're going to build this. Like, we need to understand what the in climate infrastructure for net zero or climate neutrality will look like before we build it. And I think that's the big uncertainty right now. We're, we're not good stewards of land use. We're not good stewards of the infrastructure requirements. And we're also, governments are also often painting this picture that behavioral change will deliver um, a significant decarbonization wedge. But this, I think we all need to, you know, this is of course certainly one piece of the puzzle, but it's still an infrastructure problem. Uh, Lee, you've mentioned a couple of uh, interesting ideas uh, in a couple of uh, your answers. Uh, the first one uh, you've mentioned a couple of times is direct air capture uh, CCS. Um, what role can that play and other carbon negative, uh, so-called carbon negative technologies such as bioenergy with CCS uh, play in the, in the future of uh, the energy transition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from our perspective, I think there is really three um, pieces here that they could help us with. Um, first of all, and I think this has also been recently confirmed by the most recent IPCC report, is that um, CDR technologies can help 
um, reduce emissions um, in the near term, reduce net emissions in the near term. It can also counterbalance residual in, in, emissions, say from, you know, if we don't, uh, if we have residual emissions, say in the aviation sector, and then of course, um, it can help us achieve and sustain net negative emissions in the long term. So this is kind of the theoretical framework. For this to happen, of course, we need to scale these technologies responsibly, um, recognizing Michaela uh, mentioned um, some of the facilities that um, we are not at megaton scale, so million tons per annum. But when we're looking at the models, we're looking almost at gigaton scale, so billion tons of CO2 annually sequestered. Um, But I think, again, the, the importance here is not a silver bullet. It's not a get out of jail free card for us to continue emission, emitting. It's also, you know, just like, again, not letting industry off the hook here. We need to show that it can be done and that it can be done well and responsibly um, in the near term as soon as possible. And um, then it certainly has to be a tool in the toolbox, just as all the other decarbonization options and clean energy technologies that we have available. At this point in time, I think it's been said over and over, we need to use, make use of all the tools we have available to us as the clock's ticking. Mm, absolutely. And uh, another um, idea that you, you kind of briefly mentioned, and we wrote, wrote about it recently uh, on Foresight, was the introduction of uh, CCS, carbons, uh, CCS contracts of a difference. Uh, could you describe how these would work and what impact they could have? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, CCFDs are huge. Also in Germany, would love to hear, um, Michaela, what do you think about them? Um, but in general, with all these decarbonization technologies, as we already said, like we're bridging a cost gap. Bill Gates calls it the green premium in his book, um, right? Where in, in a current environment, um, they're not competitive. And so the CCFDs would, um, and there are already some tangible examples on the member state level, like the SD++, um, but they w- would be, ta- they would basically, you know, there's a strike price, say it costs me $120 to make the entire carbon capture and storage value chain on this cement plan work. And it's a guaranteed price for a certain amount of time. Um, it can be 20 years if you're financing the facility over 20 years. And then this gives me a guaranteed strike price and it can be combined with a carbon price. So it will essentially make up the difference to the ETS. Um, There is proposals uh, have been put forward on European Union level for ETS reform, the next generation of the innovation fund having CCFDs. Um, The SE++ in the Netherlands uh, is a similar mechanism that is helping to finance um, or was awarded to um, the Port of Rotterdam Carbon Capture and Storage Hub, um, and uh, yeah, it 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 is a very uh, very viable tool. But again, not uh, what I think is important to say. You're not a silver bullet. I think these projects are complex. All of them have different costs for different technology readiness levels. We might need additional funding, such as feed studies, feed study grants, and um, uh, um, capital. Um, capital expenditure support in addition to this OPEX support of a carbon contract for difference, which really rewards the ton for ton of emissions reduction uh, technology delivers. And then, of course, it depends, are we wrapping all the costs of infrastructure and storage in, or are we also giving additional incentives to have those be be developed individually and thus reduce cross-chain risk? And I think what's really, really important about these um, policies is that they make these technologies financeable from an investment perspective. What I always like to say when people like to ask me, well, CCS is so expensive, I say, well, you know, $100 a ton is not that expensive from a decarbonization perspective, given the, the, the social cost of carbon. What's really expensive is a 10% risk premium on a $600 million loan to make these facilities which essentially are just, you know, CCS is just an additional cost, right? It doesn't, it produces a climate benefit, first and foremost, like renewables produce electricity. <laughs> um, so this is kind of this CCFD spiel, but, you know, Michela, how do you think about it? CCFDs for the industrial sector, huge topic, really exciting. And this is policy innovation, right? We need new policies for this unprecedented challenge. Mm-hmm. 
And they've worked well for the offshore industry, CF, CFDs. Yeah. No, our industry team, uh, I mean, basically all, all what you said, I think we would, uh, we, 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 are, we are totally on the same line, huh? that basically there's the cost gap at the moment, really. Uh, and uh, I'm always impressed by how much bigger this cost gap is because of the free allowances. And so we need to get out of this. So then there will be at some point, uh, you know, when, when basically, because the green innovative technologies don't have access to them. So no, after the reform, we will. But basically, you have to subsidize also against this. But even beyond that, there's this gap. And CCFDs is always uh, in our toolbox. Um, and it's exactly what you said as well. But it's not, you need several things. And and, and I, you mentioned the green premium idea. I think we, we are under-exploiting the pull policies, you know, where you wouldn't have to spend money, but you, you give them a, a quota or you work through green public procurement with, you know, because, I mean, interest rates are going up. You cannot fund everything forever. So CCFDs definitely. Um, but I think there's also other clever tools to to bring them in. But I guess, well, yeah, I, 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 I guess I'm pretty much on the same line with what you say. I mean, I guess one of the biggest, biggest topics for you would also be, for example, the free allowance issue, no? What they settle on uh, phasing out free allowances, I guess, uh, the key for, 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 for your policies as well, right? Yeah, I was going to come back to that. I'm so glad you raised this because, right, the, everyone's saying, well, the ETS is there. It should have deployed carbon capture and storage. Well, the ETS is there, but the free allowances is really, you know, you need uh, carrots and sticks in, in these for these policies to really set the long-term stage. And I think now the stage, the, the moment has come where we need to create a clear pathway of expectation that the government is investing in these technologies is delivering political recognition, but in turn, industry needs to take and show that it can be done and then commit to a more stringent climate policy in the long run. So I think uh, certainly we have reached that moment and, and certainly agree. And also on the poll policies that, you know, what, what are, what are some low carbon content of steel and cement? How can we reward this? European union is part of the first movers coalition, uh, with the World Economic Forum and Secretary Kerry that was announced last year at COP26 to really have the private sector commit to producing low-carbon products. But more, uh, I think, there again, there's a regulatory pathway and there is an incentive pathway here. Incentive pathways for the first movers and then regulatory pathways to really show where the destination is, where we're going to go and where we're expecting industry to go in the long run. So, yeah, totally aligned Um and uh, really excited about this conversation, really excited about, you know, this policy innovation that's happening in Europe. Europe is a climate superpower. And it's I think the p- blueprints that we are creating in Europe will be so useful for the rest of the world, because as we're I- as we're innovating, as we're ratcheting up climate ambition, we need to innovate policies. We need to adjust policies um, coming back to the AEG every two years. <laughs> Um, to really take into account commercial realities. But this is, I think, what Europe's going to be, hope, what we're hoping Europe is going to be really, really amazing at. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. I'm um, sadly, we're coming to the end of our time together. Um, you mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, I'd really be interested to hear what your uh, thoughts are. If you could look into your crystal ball, uh, what the energy sector looks like in 10 to 20 years' time. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) I was so excited about the crystal ball because, you know, from an innovation perspective, 10 to 20 years, you know, it's not that long. It really historically has taken us 50 years to bring new technologies to market. Thinking about solar, that even followed the same timeline, but we need to compress these timelines. We need to be faster to decarbonize as soon as possible with the clock ticking. And so, I mean, my crystal ball would be really that in 10 years, which is 2032, which sounds like it's tomorrow, we're really on a path where governments have outlined infrastructure plans, climate infrastructure plans towards net zero, where we're, where, you know, people understand what, what infrastructure we need, where we're building it, how we're building it. Um, and then we're on a good pathway with key, of course, you know, in the U.S., we hope that some of these policies can deliver um, dozens of carbon capture and storage technologies where we have reduced 
um, the cost, enabled stand learning by doing business ecosystem. Um, and this spillover also reflected, of course, in, in Europe. And in Europe, of course, you know, we have loads of new policies that are blueprints and we're following our infrastructure plans. We have um, we have really advanced Europe in the hydrogen economy uh, are on the road um, to really innovating and sh- showing the way and, and keeping that position. So I think from a climate perspective, that would be my crystal ball. However, I will say that you write with everything going on in the world right now, there's probably um, other factors and other things happening. But this is from for what I would hope we're on a pathway towards climate. Excellent. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, thank you so much, Lee. Uh, I'm sure there was many more topics that we could uh, discuss on CCS as well. And hopefully maybe we'll have you back uh, another time soon. Very finally then, before we go, uh, I'd like to go around the table and uh, see what caught my eye uh, this week. Uh, I'll go first. Um, I saw a really interesting report or an article in The Guardian uh, in the UK um, discussing uh, whether cars should be banned from cities uh, and looking into the various um, programs and initiatives that have already underway in some uh, countries in the Netherlands, for example, um, and uh, I think in, in some of the Nordic countries, and how they're trying to reclaim the streets for pedestrians, for citizens, for bikes, and for other low-carbon forms of transport, and getting rid of cars from cities. And it's just something, it's a really interesting idea um, that I think could be really beneficial for lots of people. And I know, you know, we've spoken briefly on Jan's uh, low, low neighborhood zone, neighborhood car free zone uh, that's been introduced there. And just, I think it'd be a really interesting idea um, to clear out the cities from cars and, and, other, and other forms of polluting transport. Neighborhood field. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, we can absolutely, we can absolutely do that. Um, Jan, what about you? What caught your eye this week? Maybe we need a, another episode on, on, uh, on transport. Um, uh, and infrastructure. Uh, well, actually, two pieces. One, one that you just reminded me of, uh, uh, Dave, by mentioning the Guardian article. So there's also a similar article in in Wired, and this is, uh, I think, the title is something like um, "People Hate Car-Free Cities Until They Live in One," um, and it does the same thing. It kind of looks at past examples, um, you know, the Netherlands, but also places like Barcelona, London, etc. Um, so it's all about you know, traffic calming measures and how they affect um, the livability of, of, of cities and urban environments. Um, the other piece is the ARENA report, which I briefly mentioned before in the conversation, uh, which came out, which is it's actually quite, um, quite well summarized in an executive summary if you don't want to read the whole report. But it's basically cost, cost uh, figures on um, what different renewable technologies um, cost and how the costs have evolved in 2021. And so that that's certainly worth a read. Um, um, I also shared it widely on Twitter and LinkedIn. Absolutely. We'll check those out. And those links will be in the show notes. Uh, Lee, what caught your eye this week? There are multiple things that have been catching my eyes over the past week. I would certainly say what has been happening in the United States on climate um, is uh, what, you know, was my um, attention was turned to uh, over the past couple of weeks, first with the Supreme Court decision, West Virginia versus EVA. And then, of course, um, on the drama on Friday in Congress. Um, and I think uh, from our perspective, this is this is really where we need to see the silver lining and find um, alternative pathways and al- find alternative ways to build political coalitions, unconventional political coalitions and place-based um, support for really creating climate policy in in the United States. And um, this is also where I think Europe's importance becomes really, really highlighted on pressing forward on innovative climate policies and climate ambition. Yeah, really interesting stuff there. And Michaela, what caught your eye? Well, unlike Jan, I think the weather was too hot for big reports. So I could only digest small tweets. <laughs> um, no, um, I read yesterday by a uh, German energy economist. He basically said, if you invested now in France in a wind turbine, pay back time two years with the current price without subsidies. Like he just wanted to show, yeah, like 
you know, I think it's, I liked it because it's like in this energy price debate, a, a reminder that, you know, the price also has a function and, uh, you know, the, um, it's, it's approached only by uh, primarily as a problem, but actually this price uh, is also needed for decarbonization. I think the topic today has shown it and uh, yeah, it was a funny way of putting it, obviously. I mean, it's just basically based on, you know, it's not a permitting or anything, but it's basically the economics give you two two years payback in, with the French power price at the moment. Really interesting. Uh, that is all we have time for today. My thanks to Lee, Michaela, Jan and our producer, Anna. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Uh, Lee? I'm at at underscore Lee underscore Beck. Jan? Um, I'm on at Jan Rosnow. And Michaela? At Citizen Sane one If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.